Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Monica Mafla, and I'm a nurse practitioner at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, Stanford. Today, we will be speaking about virtual reality with our guests, doctors David Axrod and Stephanie Handler. Welcome to the podcast. David and Stephanie, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to our audience. Sure. Uh, my name is David Axelrod. I'm a clinical professor at Stanford and an attending in the cardiovascular intensive care unit. Um, and I'm also, by way of introduction and disclosure, I'm uh, the lead medical advisor at a small virtual reality company named Lighthouse, which makes VR content for education and training in healthcare and the sciences. Great. Welcome, David. And hi, I'm Stephanie Handler. I'm an assistant professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin and an attending at Children's Wisconsin in the Herbert Hart Institute. I was fortunate enough to be a fellow of David Axelrod's and um, am very appreciative of the opportunity to be involved both with the virtual reality programming and to be here today. Excellent. Thank you both for joining us. I'm really excited to talk about virtual reality. I think that it is one of the upcoming technologies in medicine, and I think it's really exciting to hear who is working on the forefront of this technology. I think it would be helpful to hear how you both got involved in virtual reality. David, would you mind walking through where you were introduced to this and how you got involved in this venture? Okay, it started for me about five or six years ago when we were looking at Stanford to to build some educational content for a conference that we held at Stanford a couple of years back regarding pulmonary artery reconstruction. And so we had some online two-dimensional representations of essentially of our team's work with uh, Tetralogy Pulmonary Atresia and MAPCAS. And so uh, I connected with the team that had built that initial platform and we started talking about additional educational programs we could build and virtual reality came up and it turned out that the the team that I spoke with who ended up being Lighthouse was already starting to work in VR and we just basically started from there to build initially the thought was a Mapkis heart but when we started with that we said well why not build some of the the simpler heart defects as well and kind of broaden the the educational reach of what we're trying to do and so we started building that in, uh, I think it was 2000, uh, sorry, 2016, and then actually brought a demo to the Pixis conference uh, either that year or, or the year after, and just got such amazing feedback from the community that it really kind of started to build from there. So that was really the kind of my initiation. Um, I didn't have any background in software engineering or, or VR or gaming or anything. And when I think about VR, I sort of think where maybe it started in things like aviation and uh, simulation training, stuff like that. When you guys started this program, how do you start by building that? Is that all software engineering or are you transferring from other forms of uh, technology such as CT, MRI, or ECHO into these prototypes? That's a really good question. It gets a lot to some of the the challenges of using VR in education and clinical care as well, which, you know, we may get to later on. There's, yes, you can do kind of both of those, those ways of using VR, either as kind of a visualization medium. So as you can think of it as kind of an advanced way to view two-dimensional images like CT or MRI reconstructions, you can take those and kind of port them into VR just so that you're looking at them in a different environment. And if you want to get really technical and in the weeds, you know, some people will kind of in the tech community will, will kind of say that's not 
not really VR. It's not really leveraging kind of the power of the of the VR medium just because it's you're just kind of looking at a two-dimensional image uh, in a three-dimensional world. We decided to go from a different approach, which is not better or worse, just different, which is that we used all computer-generated software engineered images. So we had our the team at Lighthouse completely build and construct the whole world that you're in and completely build and construct the heart. So you can kind of think of it a little bit like a I like to say it's kind of analogous to what Frank Netter did, you know, with the, the amazing illustrations um, that he drew of, of hearts. Um, we created these hearts from, from scratch. So they're essentially computer generated, almost like artist representations of these hearts. So all original work. Yeah, that's right. And so what you gain from that is that you can build kind of this prototypical, say VSD heart that is representative of kind of a, uh, comprehensive average of a number of VSDs. What's attractive about the other way of doing it is that if you put a CT heart into VR is that that is actually somebody's actual anatomy. And so there's kind of just balances on, on each side. And we can get into some of the tech tech details on there too, if you're interested. It's uh, helpful to know because I think when, you know, when I think about pulling something from CT or MR, I'm wondering, can that then be replicate it in three dimension and then pull it apart from there that gets a little more technical but i think it's helpful to know that a lot of it is in 2d and so you're just moving what's already there and i think we could visualize that but knowing that the the software is uh, original art is helpful and also beneficial i think to the learner stephanie how did you where in uh, david's sort of timeline chronologically where did you get involved and how did that come about thanks monica um I left Stanford around the time that, that David had started creating the software. And then shortly after that, here at Children's Wisconsin was looking at educational opportunities for our learners and for clinical care. And it actually just worked out to be really perfect timing where David had a pilot that he was ready to share with sites that could launch their own educational programs that could test the software and could devise new and, and different ways of using it. And so it worked out well that David was ready to kind of have these spread sites join on to his initial pilot at Stanford. And so we acquired the software um, about probably four years ago now, and then we're able to embark on some multi-institution studies at first, and then kind of veer off on our own and see where we could provide educational opportunities in VR, both to our patients and our learners here in Milwaukee. David, how many people or how many centers do you have involved in your initial launch that Stephanie's describing? Um, we started sharing it shortly after that Pixis meeting, which kind of introduced us to a lot of people that were either interested in the VR education or um, wanted to, to see if they could start programs of their own based on the work that we had done. Um, so we were sharing it with programs at that time. And pretty quickly, it got up to, I, I want to say about 20, 25 programs in the first two years on every continent, every habitable continent, um, you know, we would get kind of interest from people in Asia and, and you know, one or two in, in Africa and number in Europe, um, which was really fun because we got to connect with, you know, people all across the world and, and share our work. And then over the years that, that have followed, we've, you know, continued to have people that are interested. And so I think now we're up to about, I want to say it's close to 50 programs that are either uh, academic, you know, medical centers doing kind of what we do, similar to a lot of the groups at Pixis. There's educational groups like some high school science education programs. There's an art museum, like in, I think, Miami or something that wanted to use it, which was kind of fun. But mostly it's for, you know, training and education in healthcare and then a few in, in education in the sciences. 
So when you guys are talking about the education component, if we start there, who uh, you could each speak individually to your own experience, but who are you educating? Is this geared at medical trainees, residents, fellows, all of the above? Is there any, you know, nursing involvement or other disciplines? Sure. And um, I'll start. David reminded me of the most fun educational experience that I've had with it. That's not something that's been replicable, but it was, I got asked to teach third graders about their heart. There was a little girl who is locally who had a VSD and her mom celebrates her heart anniversary every year at school. And her mom is on our foundation board and asked me if I would zoom in and show them. So I zoomed, I was wearing the headset and I just connected to Zoom. So they didn't get to experience it in virtual reality, but I showed them the heart. And the questions that I got from the third graders were among the most fun that I've had of any learners. And so it's just really, it's cool the, the opportunities and the interest that's come even from the community when you have this type of software and you're able to, to kind of advertise it. But back to your question about learners here at our institution, the first project that we embarked on was a resident education project. And so it was a multi-institution study where Over a two-year period of time, we all worked on a validated assessment tool to assess knowledge of the six basic heart defects that we have in the software. And we administered that that assessment to residents over a year-long period of time during their cardiology rotation at three institutions. And then the following year, so the second year, the experiment year of the study, we had the residents who are coming through cardiology do the VR. And um, David did a voiceover so that you could walk through education for each of these six lesions. And then we administered the same assessment. So we had the control group who took the assessment without the VR experience and the experiment group who took the assessment after and showed that we really enhanced their knowledge of these congenital heart defects by using this this type of learning. And so that was the first project. And I felt that it was very applicable to residents and their level of training on the cardiology rotation. So then we expanded that. And along with one other institution just completed a similar medical student project where we had almost 200 medical students here at the medical college who were rotating in pediatrics. They completed the assessment for us and then either did the VR learning before or after. So we did it in a way that everyone got to experience VR, but we had the experiment group who took the assessment after the learning session. And similarly, we were able to show that we really enhanced their knowledge of these basic congenital heart defects. I use it for the fellows during their initial orientation. So in terms of medical learners, we're able to use this and it's really applicable to kind of all levels. The fellows kind of test out pretty quickly with their knowledge, but at the beginning it was, it was, it was perfect for an introduction. So that's where we found it most useful in terms of our educational learners. And then we can discuss further uh, about clinical care, but in terms of learners, that's where across the spectrum from medical students, residents, and fellows, we found it to be very useful. It's too bad this is audio only because seeing some of the visual is quite impressive, you know, just for the listeners, you know, you can look through the heart from every angle from the outside, you can go into the right ventricle into the left ventricle and see where the blood is flowing, see where the defects are, like you're inside of the heart. So unless you have a lot of motion sickness, <laughs> I think it's uh, great for, for everyone to learn from. David, where have you been using this? How have you helped these learners along the way? Yeah, we started really focusing with trainees at, say, the medical student resident early fellow level. And we've, you know, broadened some aspects of the kind of target audience uh, as we've gone along. A couple interesting cases that we've done is um, we've used it in our pediatric cardiology fellowship boot camp, which at Stanford, which brings incoming fellows to pediatric cardiology to Stanford for kind of a really intensive three-day boot camp. Scott Sereznak and Catherine Kraszewski as well um, were really the ones who 
started that program. And we use that and that's been very positively received. They get, uh, I'd say about 10 or 20 minutes uh, in the VR program. And we have about 80 to 100 people using it at that time. So that's been a fun case use. I've used it in the medical student classes. We've been working into kind of the core curriculum right now. It's essentially kind of added on to Dan Bernstein's congenital heart defect kind of unit. And then kind of COVID hit and stalled everything just because I wasn't really comfortable sharing headsets with groups of people. And, you know, heaven forbid that, that, that one case of COVID happens from VR would like bring down this whole process. So I wasn't willing to do that. People ask a lot, you know, is, so are you teaching surgeons how to, how to do, you know, congenital heart defect surgery with this program? And, you know, while I have taught or I gave a, a lecture at the ATS meeting that was in Toronto a couple of years back. And actually, I think it was one of the first medical lectures that I've done where I, I was virtual. So I was zooming in and I actually had someone physically present there who had the program because they use it in Toronto, who had the program, who was on stage doing VR for the live audience while I was talking and kind of guiding them through it, which was kind of kind of cool. That was kind of as an almost like a kind of educational program to show that group. But this isn't really something where we're teaching the surgeons how to how to do surgical techniques. In fact, you know, I usually say it's more kind of the opposite. Like we leaned pretty hard on our surgical team to get the anatomy right. And, you know, I would kind of have our software engineers build something that seemed right to me. And then I would literally have Frank Hanley go into the VR and say like, okay, well, you know, what did I, what did I get wrong or what do we need to, to make better? Um, and he had a few, few good suggestions. It's not a, a surgical trainer, although we are working to get some of the surgical techniques and modifying anatomy um, into VR. Those are probably the initial groups that we've worked with. We've we've also done some work as well with patients and families, and that's been really exciting. You know, it's a different use to kind of show kids and families, you know, what their heart looks like and time to, to get them kind of involved in, in their care a little bit more. And I know Steph actually has been working on some of that too with uh, with a really interesting population that is looking forward to, to using the VR too. So we've used it with nurses as well. I think bedside nurses, have a lot to learn in a very um, short amount of time. And I think this can certainly be part of that educational program as well. So it's really not limited as much by content itself. It's more kind of about the educational program that you want to build around it, I would say. Yeah. And I think some of the, when going back to nursing and just like a novice learner in cardiology, some of the hardest parts, at least from my perspective, learning it over the years is really being able to visualize what's happening in three dimension, especially when you're thinking of the repair, when you're thinking of what's going on with the blood flow and being able to enter the heart that way really helps you just at least gain some visual understanding, even if it's of a normal heart. So then you can build off that in your own imagination. I think that using it for those novice learners is really important for like a foundational component of learning. Yeah, I totally agree. Part of when I was mentioning the difference between kind of building your own heart from scratch, a computer generated model, one of the things that allows you to do is to do things like go inside the heart, which you can't, you can't really do with a lot of the kind of DICOM or other images that you're importing from patient data. It doesn't have the resolution to permit that. And so, you know, for example, we, we felt like it's, it's really advantageous to be able to put a user or a student inside the heart and to actually show them where the triangle of, of Coke or where the AV node um, is located in a heart that has a VSD. And to get that three-dimensional spatial relationship is really instructive. When you kind of talk about where this goes in the future and building different programs, 
and you think of complex hearts or even not so much teaching the surgeons, but guiding operative care, do you see that as part of the future and how these build out kind of like how 3D model printing has built out some hearts? Yeah, for surgical planning. I think for sure. I, I think that is a frontier that we're definitely moving towards. I think there's, um, you know, not just Steph and I, but I think many programs are kind of looking to using VR for surgical planning. You know, an example that people frequently kind of think about is like the borderline left ventricle. And, you know, what if I take this left ventricle and, you know, baffle it, you know, in this way in VR, can I then see what the result would look like? And then maybe even, you know, still on the horizon after that is kind of age that heart, you know, 10, 20 years and see what the growth and the anatomy and physiology looks like. And it turns out, not surprisingly, that uh, that is incredibly complex, but also something that people are working pretty hard to, to achieve. We're working right now on a grant with Allison Marsden, who's in the School of Bioengineering here at Stanford, who, who does some incredibly complicated and high fidelity modeling for vascular systems. Uh, she built a program called SimVascular, which is online uh, and public. We're using that and we're in this grant working to take her vascular models and port them into VR such that we'll be able to manipulate the the flows and the modeling in VR and and see real-time results of those uh, flow um, changes as as you kind of do different surgical approaches. Like I said, it's incredibly complex. The computing and the software engineering is like multiple levels over what what I understand. Um, but I think it's it's more than just kind of taking a DICOM image of even a really high fidelity three-dimensional reconstruction of a CT MRI and kind of like jamming a, a, a patch in there and saying, well, how does it look? It's, uh, I think, the future, as you mentioned, for 3D printing, which is attractive, but also static and takes you know a fair amount of time and can be uh, kind of hard to, to manipulate real time or to make changes. So I think all of those advantages, you know, lean towards VR. It's just a question of how can we get the time, energy, money, resources to, to have people be able to actually make that a reality. And, and that's, it's really exciting. It's not as fast as people would like or as, as I would like, but I'm hopeful. What do you foresee the time frame to getting to those sort of complex scenarios, being able to model that? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, so maybe two or three years ago, I said, you know, who knows, maybe three or five years down the road, we'll be doing this. And now here we are. And so we're still working on it. So, you know, I'm hopeful within the next five years that we'll have at least, you know, maybe some of the simpler lesions. It turns out things like, say, if you wanted to model a coart, that's probably easier because it's vascular, non-intracardiac, uh, you know, defect that you can relatively easily model the flow through that coart segment. So you might take a complex coart where you, you didn't know if, you know, which method was best to correct it and and be able to do that in VR. I think that that's within the next few years. The example of the borderline LV, I think is probably, you know, a few years beyond that. But, uh, but who knows, you know, there's lots of people working on it, you know, in our field, you know, even, even just within Pixis, there have to be, you know, at least five, five, you know, programs working really hard on this, on this research, taking slightly different angles. And so hopefully I think with collaboration between those groups too, is really important that we'll be able to, to, leverage all of our all of our knowledge yeah it's so interesting it's like the 
the highest levels of both world, you know, medical sciences and the computer sciences and meshing those together to get this like extraordinary complex program. It's awesome. What was your most challenging part of this work or did you have any challenges? Maybe you didn't, maybe it went seamless, but did you find any challenges along the way? You know, I think that, uh, thinking about the continuum that we all just kind of went through where we started with these the educational modules for learners starting at medical students at the earliest learners and going through and then if you think way on the other side of the spectrum to where we could go with this type of technology to patient specific modeling for an individual patient to benefit surgical planning in advance of an operative procedure which is still a ways away but a lot of work going into it and i found the most challenging is kind of where we've landed in the middle which is what we've been doing to try to enhance patient experience in clinical care right now using the created models that David has. So it's really interesting the evolution we've gone through. When I first got the technology, I thought parents want to see this before surgery because they want to know what the VSD looks like that the surgeon's going to go in and fix, even if it's not their child's heart. And then I quickly realized that the time to do that and the right timing for parents to have that type of learning experience was, was more challenging. You know, when do they want to learn about this? Do they want to learn about hypoplastic left heart in VR when they're pregnant? Do they want to learn before the Norwood? Do they want to learn after the Fontan? Because up until that point, there's too much going on for them to understand. So we stepped back from the idea of teaching the parents and we targeted the children. And that turned into actually probably the most fun I've had with VR. So what was a challenge in determining when parents would want to learn turned into this opportunity where the youngest child we've used it on was nine years old. And he was still in the hospital following a coarctation repair. And it was amazing. I mean, he put the headset on and he could work it better than I could because kids nowadays just really gravitate to that type of learning. And so that was cool. He was a little early. He got a little dizzy because he was still in the hospital. I probably should have waited until he'd recovered completely. But um, but he had had a coarct repair and he had looked at his coarctation. His parents watching him do it thought it was a great experience. But interestingly, the parents didn't want to do it themselves. And so I took that experience and went to our adult congenital team who we, we have a, a really fascinating program here in Milwaukee where our adult congenital colleagues share an office space and clinic space with us. And so they have a transition program where they initiate transition vis visits starting at age 15. And the starting at age 16, 17, and 18, they have transition questionnaires that they're administering to the patients when they see their pediatric cardiologist to determine you know, that they're making meeting milestones to transition care when they turn 18. And so I said, what if in addition to the transition visits, we offered the children an opportunity to see their heart in VR? And that really took off. So we did a, a quick pilot that we turned around fast because COVID hit for the same reasons that David had mentioned. And we approached 20 teenagers who are seeing their pediatric cardiologist, had defects that we had in VR. And we asked them if they wanted to learn about their heart. And 100% of the kids were into it. About 50% of the parents participated, not as many as I expected. Um, most were just happy seeing their child. And I was able to explain when the, when the child had the headset on what we were looking at. So I think the parents, it enhanced their learning just being a part of the experience. But resoundingly, the kids said it made them understand their heart defect better, prepared them better, and they all really enjoyed the experience. And so that was really fun. And that's where we've taken the application of VR in the clinical setting, and we're working on it being a standing part of our transition clinic visits. Um, we've also acquired a second set of hardware, a computer, and an Oculus headset so that we can put it in one of our satellite clinics that's up a little further north in Wisconsin. So our colleagues who travel there for their adult congenital clinic have access to it. 
So um, I think that's been a really, uh, you asked about challenge. It was, it was challenging to determine where to fit it in, but now that we found this home with the teenagers, it seems like a perfect fit. Yeah, it's it, just with the technology and where, you know, technology is in general, they seem like the perfect population for it. And it's great that they're learning about their their defect and their physiology in real time like that. It's I find it interesting what you mentioned about the parents, because I think we talk about this a lot, right? Even in the ICU, and I'm sure you guys experience in like prenatal counseling, the parents are bogged down with so much complex information and what can they retain. I'm not surprised to hear that they're not interested in participating in it at that time, because maybe it's just too much stimulation, too much for them to handle. I find it interesting, though, that as time goes on, their kids are learning and they're still not as interested in learning. And maybe it's just what you're getting at that they've had education themselves. They're satisfied with that. And now they're happy seeing their kid being happy learning about their, their own anatomy. Have you experienced anything like that, David, or what, what kind of challenges have you experienced? Uh, yeah, I would say, you know, timing is certainly really important. I think um, as, as Steph mentioned, we, I guess the example I would use is we did have kind of a small pilot program at Stanford where we had a few fetal patients that were interested in kind of using it to learn about it. And, um, you know, we were obviously really careful with both the timing and and also the duration of exposure, just to be really clear that, you know, things are a little different when you're dealing with a pregnant mom. You know, I think overall, we had really good feedback and the, the fetal patients, the moms expressed that they had a kind of a better understanding of what the fetal team was telling them about the diagnosis, you know, certainly as Steph is mentioning, you know, you don't want to walk in there, you know, just after the, the first few clips of a fetal echo show a hypoplastic left heart and come spring this, this new educational tool on, on people. It's just really not, not fair and not optimal for, for the patients. And, and, you know, nobody's going to learn anything at that, at that point. But I think you do get opportunities where, you know, patients are coming back for multiple scans, multiple visits, or when you, you know, kind of get to having a relationship with the family. It's like anything, once you have a relationship with the, with the patients. Um, and it turns out that there are a fair amount of times where they have kind of delays or they're waiting around, you know, for appointment or scheduling. And so I think we haven't completely worked out the best way to kind of have it accessible and available for patients and families both at the right time to be able to offer it to them and also at the right time when they have the bandwidth and the mindset and the, and the actual time to use it for five or 10 minutes. But I think, you know, as the program develops more and I think as, as more people in the community become exposed to it, you know, I think as it becomes more of a, a part of, of what people are used to, I don't think it's going to be that different than, say, sending somebody a link that they're looking at on their on their phone when they're in clinic. I think we're going to be able to find find ways to teach people with this medium um, as it gets easier to use. I think that sort of takes me into my final question for you guys. And what do you guys currently see happening in the next year in your programs? And are you working on anything currently that you'd like to let our listeners know about? Yeah, one thing I was going to mention is that you know, right now, because uh, to experience it in, in VR, you need to have a headset on. What we worked on was how do you expand this to a wider audience, even if they can't all experience VR, but what if you could have one person doing VR and everyone else experience it in 3D? And so one of the things that we did, and when we can meet in person in large groups again, I think would be really cool is we had a seminar that we put on and we had 
about 150 people in the auditorium and we were giving lectures. And at one of the breaks, we were able to have the VR headset hooked up to the, the projection screen that everyone could see. And we were able to project it in 3D. And so everyone in the audience wore 3D goggles and I had the headset on and I so you know, I was just explaining what I was looking at and everyone else was able to see the heart come out of the screen in this big auditorium in front of them, see me take apart the heart, turn it around. Again, they didn't have the exact same immersive experience in VR, but in 10 minutes, we had 150 people who could experience a version of that simulation. And so I think that just taking this technology and expanding it to larger audiences, even in that way, would be really beneficial. And then someday, if we were able to share the VR experience amongst users with different headsets on, that's kind of where I was thinking to expand the populations. It makes it really easy to do a medical student class or a third grade class, if you can, you know, to be able to expand it and not just make it a single user experience. So that that's something that we would like to expand on once we can get back in person. That's such a cool kind of thinking, you know, thinking ahead, thinking outside of the box, the way that you did that. And I, I don't know if you published that or, but it's definitely worth publishing. I don't, I don't know that I know anyone else who's done the in one person in VR and then, and then transmitting it to an audience who's seeing it in 3d. That is, it's a really cool approach to the, to the multi-user. And I totally agree. I think multi-user VR is that's kind of one advancing concept that I think is coming up and, I think, you know, because what you lose a little bit when you're in the audience wearing 3D imaging glasses is you can't interact with it. You can't manipulate it. So it's a little bit more passive, but it's a great first step. And I think um, that's one of the things we're working on as well as um, multi-user. And I know a lot of people are working on that too. And I think, you know, once we get more power with kind of the um, online versions and being able to, to get, you know, this much data and this much kind of VR, you know, user experience, into an online format. I think that is something that would be really fun because then you could essentially make it like, um, you know, a lot of the games like Roblox, like what kids are playing where you're kind of, you know, all working together on a congenital heart defect. It's just a matter of how can you get something that has so much data and information and computer graphics up onto a, a reasonable platform that that won't, you know, crash the whole internet in, in three minutes. But I think those are all really exciting to think about. Yeah, those are both excellent ways for the individual learner on the masses and then in the classroom setting like you're describing, Stephanie. I think just going back to what I kind of talked about, the novice learner, I think even without pulling apart the heart, being able to see it in three dimension is just remarkable. And I think it will benefit so many people in the long run. And I think it's awesome what you're doing for the community and cardiology and for all the learner. Hopefully we see VR being expanded in the ways you're describing throughout the years and and we can all learn from it. Well, thank you both for being here. We really enjoyed hearing from you and hearing with your experiences and having you on the podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more.